So today is our fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, and you kind of need this reminder. I know I need to be told over and over again what Advent means. It's, it's this idea of uh, the coming or the arrival of someone or something significant. And so in the life of the church, Advent is uh, a time where the church has celebrated the coming of Christ, uh, right? The second person of the Trinity arriving in human flesh. It's also a, a time for us to as we think about our own experience, right, we, we, we tend to miss this. And if you haven't noticed, our liturgy today is kind of uh, laid out, not just of thinking through the coming of Christ the first time, but that he's going to return a second time. And, and we can understand what, what it was like for the Israelites to be waiting for a Savior because we also are waiting for his return, not knowing when or how far it might be, but sure that it will happen. Uh, and so today... Uh, I, I thought what we're going to do is we're going to focus on a tiny little phrase that's found in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so if you can, go ahead and open up the chapter 9 of Isaiah, right? Old Testament. And it's uh, such a small phrase that I thought the first thing we'd do is teach it to you in the original language, which is Hebrew, right? You can do that. You might see it in your bulletin there. It's in the Hebrew and then transliterated uh, so you can say it in English, right? So uh, you want to say it with me? Sar Shalom. Okay, again, Sar Shalom. Now that dash actually means we're supposed to say it in like one googly sounding thing, like Sar Shalom, real quick. That sounded French. It was not French. Um, So anyway, now that you know a a little bit of Hebrew, just a little bit, uh, we can just appreciate that we're about to read this passage in English this morning, right? Thank God for the Reformation. Um, So follow along, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that you have shown your plan of redemption unfold throughout history. Thank you that we are now part of your story, part of your bringing this message of salvation to your people and bringing us into your family for the rest of eternity. Help us to understand from your word today the peace that has come in the coming of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So some words are more difficult to understand than other words, right? Um, Not just because they're confusing, but because they've been confused throughout history. Peace is one of these words that we get, uh, it's really difficult to understand because we've heard it in so many contexts and it's thrown around everywhere. So in general, this this term peace, we we tend to think of it as, as this, it means not war, right? There's peace and then there's, you know, that's just not war. And in some sense, that's right, right? So you've likely probably heard this story before, but I'll tell you too. How many have heard of the, the Christmas uh, Peace Treaty of 1914? Okay, some of you have heard it. Okay, World War I had just begun a few months earlier, and the Allies and Germany, right? These are the enemies here. Uh, we're fighting this battle, and, and there's this system of trenches, right? You stay in the trenches, you're safe. You come out of the trenches and go to the middle, which is called no man's land, and you are incredibly unsafe there. And so on Christmas Eve 1914, there was a truce that happened. The, the German soldiers began singing, Still not 
right? Do you know what that is in English? Silent Night. Uh, And the Allies joined in and singing it, only they were singing it in English, uh, right? Silent Night. And the men on both sides eventually came out of these trenches and they gathered together in that area called No Man's Land, the unsafe place in the middle, where, where they actually continued to sing of the birth of Christ together. When just a few hours earlier, they were trying to kill each other. They exchanged gifts with each other. They participated in the burial services of people uh, on the other side. They, they played a game of soccer together, um, which nowadays tends to lead to war, not the other way around. It, it's this beautiful story where you see peace in the midst of this war, but it, it's not the meaning of Christmas. This is not peace in the, in, the, in the fuller sense that we understand it. Because you see, the following day, the, these people went back to fighting each other, back to trying to kill each other, and unfortunately, they mostly succeeded at doing so. And so this peace was incredibly temporary along the way. But what I want you to see today is, is that when, when God speaks of peace in the Scriptures, and when God speaks of peace here in Isaiah, it, it's something far greater, far more permanent, something eternal and of huge significance. So we're going to learn that, you know, while peace does mean lack of war, it also means a great deal more in all contexts. Now, um, now that you all are actually like experts in Hebrew at this point, um, which Ryan would disagree with since he's actually taken Hebrew, uh, you, you also know that in, in Hebrew culture, then, likely that the word peace has a, a much wider significance. It's used all the time. And, and in fact, that's why probably most of you know the word shalom beforehand. How many of you had heard that previously? Shalom. All right. A great deal of you, right? Because it means peace and it's used as a greeting as well as a way of saying goodbye to someone uh, within Jewish culture. And the, the, the concept of Peace, in fact, is so widely a part of the Christian faith that uh, every single letter, every single one of the letters that Paul wrote includes the greeting, a greeting of peace. Uh, usually it's grace to you and peace as he opens his letters. That's shalom. And, and maybe you've noticed that it's not just Christians, right, that are kind of obsessed with this concept of, of peace. It's, it's all people that seem to be obsessed with it. After all, what, uh, what's been given, what's been the, the given answer to nearly every or by every single um, beauty pageant contestant in the history of the world when asked this question? If you could be granted one, one wish, what would it be? World peace, world peace right? Or, or, or consider this, since 1901, there's been an award given to whoever has done the most to, to, to promote uh, and keep world peace. What's it called? The Nobel Peace Prize, in case you're wondering, I looked it up to make sure I was right about this, but the Nobel Peace Prize has never in the history of the prize been given to a beauty pageant contestant. Ever. Um, Just a little fact there. Uh, There is also a a universal logo, logo that means peace. We we tend to look at, I don't know the actual history of it, but it looks like an upside down cross within a a circle. Um, There's a hand sign that means peace. What is that? Right? I've actually had people during the passing of the peace just flash me the sign of peace occasionally. Um, I feel like we need to do a little more explanation when that happens. In, in 2011, the NBA player Ron Artest legally changed his name to Meta World Peace, and his whole reason for doing was to promote world peace, right? He also later changed his name to the Panda's Friend. I wish that was a joke. It's not. Um, so anyway, while the word peace is... Everywhere in our culture, 
You, you hear it all the time. Everyone uses this word. It, it means something to everyone. In our passage today, what, what we're seeing is, is this idea of peace in a more ultimate sense, not in the light, fluffy way it gets thrown away or thrown around in culture. See, the, the word from Isaiah, uh, these words from Isaiah might be incredibly familiar to you that we just read, right? It's part of the well-known musical piece called Handel's Messiah. Uh, in my opinion, it's the best part of the whole Handel's Messiah. If you can skip everything but that, you're going to be okay. No offense to you that love Handel's Messiah. Uh, and so then the first thing you need to know about this passage then is, is that while it is talking about Jesus when we read that, right? You see that, I see that, and we're like, that's Jesus that they're talking about. It, it's also not talking about Jesus. Let me explain that. You see, I, Isaiah is a, a prophet, right? And we tend to think of a prophet as someone who can, who can tell the future. Like, oh, you're a prophet because you're predicting things, right? Uh, sometimes that's been the case with God's prophets. But, but really, a prophet is anyone that speaks the word of God on behalf of God, for God, right? That God gives it to them and they speak it. And, and so, the Isaiah, so Isaiah is a prophet and his ministry is to speak the word of God. Now, here's the further context of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, you remember the Israelites were slaves in Egypt at one point, right? And then God sends the plagues, right, to, to, to Egypt. And it all ends with the Passover, right? Blood on the doorpost and the, and the firstborn being killed unless you have that. And, and in the end, the Israelites escape and they go through the parting of the Red Sea and off they go, right? And, and then they wander around in the desert complaining for about 40 years, uh, and then they get to the promised land, and eventually God gives them victory there and a place there. And, and then they, they enter to the promised land, and, and they establish the Big 12, right? Not the conference. Uh, they establish the 12, or the kingdom of Israel that consists of these 12 tribes. But then the Israelites, you know, get discontent with God. They're not satisfied with him. And so they, they go and they tell God, we want a king. Why do they want a king? Because every other nation has a king. We want to be like that. And like a parent might tell their son who wants to major in philosophy, God tells the Israelites, that is a terrible idea. Don't do that. And like the prideful child who goes on to still major in philosophy anyway, um, they say, we want a king anyway. Give us a king. And so God gives them a king. Uh, you know some of these kings. You had bad King Saul, right? You had good King David, wise King Solomon, uh, and so on. And then soon after that, the civil war breaks out in, in Israel. Israel becomes the, the name of the north, right? Ten tribes in the north are Israel, uh, consisting of that. And Judah is, is the name of the southern tribes, just two of them, right? And they go by Judah, not the Confederate states of Judah, just Judah. And it's just these two little tribes. And suddenly you have God's people actually hating each other. The north and the south are, are separated from each other. And they each have their own king. And, and, and so with the kingdom divided, the, the Assyrians and the Egyptians, yes, them again, they start to attack and, and, and come in. And, and this is where Isaiah comes in, okay? Because Isaiah is a prophet at this time. He's in Judah, right? He's in the, with the southerners. Uh, and, and he's the prophet there. And Isaiah remains a prophet with them for, for 50 years, right? He's speaking the word of the Lord to the people of God. Uh, and he does so to five different kings there in that time period. In our text today, he's talking to the second of those five kings, a guy by the name uh, King Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 when he became king. Can you imagine having that responsibility? He ruled for 16 years. <clears throat> uh, Ahaz is a bad king, if you had to divide it into good and bad. He, he basically said, I, I don't need God. I'm going to do this ruling thing all on my own. Forget you, God, and it's going to go fine. 
And so Isaiah has been saying to this king, right? He's saying, Ahaz, now would be a good time to repent and, and to return to the Lord and to lead your people in that. And, and the, people, the people actually do repent, but King Ahaz, not so much. He, he is this fool that refuses to repent and keeps going uh, against the Lord. And so Isaiah starts telling the people about this future time when things will be better. And that's when we start to see these references where you and I see them and we're saying that is clearly talking about Jesus, right? Things like in Isaiah 7, 14, when, when God says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we're like, that's Jesus, right? And then in our text, we, we start to learn about who this child is. And that's where you kind of get to that, that you know, big point and handles Messiah. Uh, wonderful counselor, right? He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, and then it, it says in the next verse, it says that his rule and his peace are going to endure forever. Just go on forever. So now remember the context of this statement here. Much of this is, is going to come true in, in the person of uh, in the birth of a person named Hezekiah. Uh, any of you recognize that name? I'll never forget that name for the rest of my life. When I was a, a brand new believer, I came to faith in high school, and I remember sitting around at a Bible study, <clears throat> and someone asked me, we're all like seriously doing stuff, and someone asked me, find Hezekiah 316 and, and, and read it when we call on you here in a minute. And I'm a, a new believer, and I'm over here just flipping through going, where is Hezekiah? Like getting nervous, just terrified. I have to read this and I still don't know where it is. Um, here's the thing. Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible. Sure sounds like one, especially if you're new to the faith. But, uh, but Hezekiah not being a, a book in the Bible, he is a king. He's the king that, that comes after uh, bad king Ahaz. And so Hezekiah is this, this king in the southern, uh, tri- for, over the southern tribes of Israel. And so then Judah, or right, so then Israel, the northern tribes, decided that they're going to attack the southern tribes, right? Um, they might have called this the war of northern aggression, but not everyone would agree on that. And it gets confusing at this point. But, but the important thing for us to understand is that there is actual peace in the land for a period of time. And I mention that so that you understand this, that, that, that the people that originally heard this, uh, this prophecy from Isaiah, they, they didn't get to see it as clearly as you and I do to see it, it's being fulfilled in, in, in Jesus Christ. They, they would have seen it fulfilled in Hezekiah, but also understood some of this stuff is not fulfilled in Hezekiah. Some of this stuff is so much bigger than this new king that God has given us. And, and we today have something that the, the people in the Old Testament didn't have. We have an advantage they didn't have. We, we have what we call the New Testament. We, we live on the other side of the cross. And, and, and so we, we can look backwards at the Old Testament and we're reading it through this, this, this lens, right? The lens of Christ so that we can clearly see this is talking about Jesus. That's where the fulfillment's going to come. And you see, Jesus himself teaches us to read this way. You know, after his resurrection and he's, and he's walking with some of his disciples and they don't really know that it's him. Somehow he has prevented them from being able to see that. And in Luke 24, 25 through 27, that's chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, he says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's all the Old Testament, right? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying that passages like Isaiah 9 
are ultimately about him. For instance, Isaiah says that his kingdom and his peace will never end, right? That didn't happen with, with Hezekiah. Hezekiah died and his son became king after him, Manasseh, not a good king. Uh, he was evil. Things did not go peaceful at that time. But in Jesus, this prophecy is fulfilled, completely fulfilled. Fourteen times in the book of Matthew, the author, Matthew, says uh, Jesus is fulfilling something from the prophets, right? And, and that word fulfill, we, we use it in so many different ways, but it means to take something that's empty or something that's maybe half full or three quarters full and then to fill it all the way up to the brim, completely, right? All the way. It's about completing. And so when Isaiah prophesies in our text, it's made partially complete in Hezekiah, but it is only made fully complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in our passage, we, we see four names that describe Jesus long before his birth. He's called Wonderful Counselor, uh, meaning his wisdom is perfect. He's called Mighty God, meaning that his, his all-powerful you know, rule is, is sovereign and complete. He's called Everlasting Father, which tells us of the way he's going to care for his people and, and the position he's going to have, right? Not just as our God, but uh, serves in the role as our Father as he adopts us. And he's called the Prince of Peace, which is our focus in this passage today, right? And so then how is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy? How does that come true? How, how is Jesus the Prince of Peace? And, and how is he going to establish peace that never comes to an end? And, and, and so because of the fall, we do not begin at peace with God. I think that's one of the issues that we, we tend to struggle with as a wider community, right, as, a, as Americans, right, this idea that we're born sinful and selfish and, you know, we're, whereas Romans 8, 7 says we are hostile towards God, not neutral, but actually hostile towards God, or as Romans 5, 10 puts it, it's a, in our natural state, we're, we're enemies of God, enemies, which is the exact opposite, opposite of being at peace with God, and, and to be an enemy of God is a scary thing. If you think about that, if you let that sink in at all, you see, it's it can be difficult to get our minds around just how badly we need peace with God. And in any illustration tends to fall short, but I'm going to go ahead and try to give you one anyway. Right. Uh, maybe in, in, in any illustration is going to fall short because there, there's nothing quite like being an enemy of the holy creator of the universe. There is no illustration that comes to that. But like I said, I'll give you a try, give a try. Um, when I was in the sixth grade, there's this one guy, there always is this one guy who was huge, massive, and mean, very mean. His name was Donnie Guidry, and, and I didn't know him very well. It was a large school. In the last week of sixth grade, I was talking to some guys, and I, I carelessly referred to Donnie by a, a name, a word that was of great offense against his Italian lineages, lineage. Um, and he became very angry when it got back to him. Uh, he was furious. I, I was instantly in that moment, uh, you know, enemy number one of Donnie Guidry. And in this junior high, that was not a safe place to be. And the last week, I was so afraid to, to go to school. I would tiptoe around the corners looking to see if maybe he's there. Um, it just terrified. I, I asked for hall passes on the days to, I'm going to leave class early and get to my class. And as soon as that one opens, I'm going in there just so I can stay safe because I don't want him to kill me. 
Uh, and, and, you know, just terrified. Like, it's hard to understand maybe how real this fear was. And in and, and the very last day of school, people start telling me, you know, Donnie brought pennies and brass knuckles to school. He's going to kill you. Right? Where does a sixth grader in 1991 get brass knuckles? I don't know. But he really had them. We had this balcony I could see down. And at one point, he's showing someone his brass knuckles. And I'm thinking, that's going to kill me. Uh, you know, it just terrified. I was so anxious that day, and yet I managed to avoid them all day long, uh, got out of the school, escaped. I was free, but then all summer long, absolutely terrified because I have to go back there in the fall. And, and, and because I was the enemy of the most dangerous kid in school who wanted to kill me, I, I spent all of summer that year with my Aunt Sally in Arkansas, and, and I thought, maybe, maybe I can just live in Arkansas and, and that's, that'll keep me safe. Seriously, was looking into asking my aunt about that. Like, couldn't do it. Uh, and then the first day of school in the sixth grade, I was so anxious. I thought I might just throw up. I was a dead man. I kind of knew it. And my only hope was that maybe Donnie Guidry wouldn't be in any of my classes. So I tiptoed around all day long. And finally, I get to the last class and the bell rings. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, hallelujah, he's not in my class. And, and then I begin to think, maybe he transferred out. Maybe he doesn't go to school here anymore. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Five minutes after the bell, the door opens, and who is it? It's Donnie Guidry. And my heart just sinks in this moment, and he scans the room looking for a seat. There are two or three options. But, but then he gives me this, this like eerie smile, kind of smile at me, and he goes and he sits in the seat right next to me. And you just can't imagine the, the fear going through that, me in that moment. And he looks at me, and he just says, hey, what's up? And I started, Donnie, I am so sorry for what I said to you. And he just stops me. He's like, it's fine. We're good. The relief in that moment of that fear was so great that I wanted to cry. But I'm a seventh grader next to Donnie Guidry, so I didn't. <laughs> All summer long, my, my aunt and my friends, you know, if I shared it with anyone, they're telling me, it's fine. It's just relax. It's no big deal. Like, it'll be, it'll be fine. None of that brought peace. None of that brought peace because it didn't change the fact that I was still an enemy of Donnie Guidry. The only thing that brought relief and peace was the moment that I was no longer an enemy of Donnie. And well, remember, because of our sinful hearts, we are all enemies of God from birth. And that's not a safe place to be. And I know we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on that fact, either as Christians thinking we were that or, or, or before we know Christ, just thinking, wow, I'm an enemy of God. That's a big deal. Uh, but that's the reality. And the only hope we have is that we, we will be at peace with God. And that's the significance of the Advent, right? In both cases, G Jesus was born in human flesh, flesh so, that, so that we can be at peace with with our creator, our holy, holy God. And how does Jesus accomplish it? Well, Isaiah actually foretells that as well, how, how Jesus will do that. In Isaiah 50, 53, verse 5, he, he writes of Jesus, right? He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's a picture of the cross, right? We've seen the picture of Christ's birth coming into the world, and then we see a picture of the cross where Jesus secures for all who have faith in him real and everlasting peace with God our Creator. 
Ephesians 2.13 explains this a little bit further when Paul there writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then a few verses later, still there in Ephesians, Jesus, um, he says Jesus has made peace by reconciling us to God through the cross so that the hostility between God and you is removed. And then in Isaiah, or sorry, Ephesians 2.17, we're told uh, that Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And Jesus doesn't just make peace possible, but he actually accomplishes it for us. Listen, through the gift of faith, we have peace with God. That that's the prophecy in our text today. And that's the glorious Gloriously redemptive message that is, is so clearly stated throughout the New Testament, but explicitly and clearly in Romans 5.1, which says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand this? If you are not at peace with God, you need to know that you can be at peace with God. You need to know that, that through the gospel, you can let go of that debilitating fear of death and judgment that lingers in the mind in the middle of the night, those dark nights when you can't find sleep. And for you who do trust in Jesus, right, this is significant too. Let, let this reality set in. You, you're not an enemy of God. You're not. He's for you. There's truly nothing more freeing than being at peace with our holy God. Knowing that he, he adopts us as a loving father, who, that he secured our, an eternal home for us, an eternal peace. And, and while we continue to live in a world that we see, right, is full of hostility, that's why beauty pageants continue to give that answer, right? Because the world is still messed up. We look forward to, to the, the kingdom of God coming into being fully established, fully fulfilled. So, so, we might, so that we will live in a world that has no sin, no hostility, only peace forever and ever and ever. See, when I experienced that peace with Donnie Guidry in the seventh grade, the, the first thing I did when I got away from him was just let out this, this sigh of relief. Because at the moment, that seemed like the, the biggest thing in the world. Everything revolved around that, that just knowing there was no peace in them. And you see, the emotional weight just rolled off my back. I felt lighter. I could breathe deeply again. And, and that's what the coming of Christ to redeem his people does for us on an infinitely, infinitely higher plane. And listen, this, this does have day-to-day -day implications for us as well. One, one, one thing I've learned about this covenant community over the last... Oh, six years, or I guess I should figure out how long we've existed. Uh, I keep generalizing that. It is this, we are, we are mostly, we are overwhelmingly an anxious people. We are stressed out about work, uh, worried about grades. We're anxious about the faith of many of those people that we love and care for. We're stressed out about Parenting, we're afraid of the future in so many different ways. And in some sense, we, including myself, we, we haven't rested in the peace of God like we should, like we can. And I, I say this to remind you, yes, our, our concerns are real, 
But, but you're at peace with your Creator. Right? Because everything can blow up in a moment, but you're at peace with your Creator. You're at peace with God. You're loved by God, and that's why Jesus came, and that's why Jesus will come again for you, for us. Right? For the glory of God, yes, but also for you. In a world where we feel so much unrest, Jesus gives us genuine rest. So that story of the, the Christmas Peace Treaty of 1914, is, it's amazing. We love stories like that. But, but like I said before, we, we know that's temporary. That's worldly to begin with and temporary. It lasted one evening. One evening. The, the peace that Jesus gives us with God will, will last for all of eternity. And, and, and that's the basis of, of all the other peace in our lives. Right? We, we forgive others of their sins against us. But when we're so aware of the forgiveness that, that God has forgiven us. We, we have peace with others because we dwell in peace with God. Even in our, our liturgy, right? The, the order of our worship service. We, you ever notice we don't just call it a time of greeting, right? We tend to think of it that way. But it, it's actually something significant. It's, it's called the passing of the peace on purpose because it is intentionally placed within the liturgy, if you notice, uh, right after we've actually confessed our sins to God. And right after that, the pastor reads the passage of assurance of our pardon, meaning listen from God's word that your sins are forgiven in Christ. And then comes the passing of the peace. Then we come to this realization we're at peace with one another as well because of Christ. Right? And being at peace with God is what facilitates all that. And so then this week, I want us to remember that that the God of the universe, your, your actual creator, right, has, has made peace with you through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Remember that and, and feel the weight of the world off your shoulders. Dwell on that. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for you that we receive through faith. And, and finally, I, I want to close just with the words of our, our Savior in John 14, 27, where, where Jesus says this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Father, if there's those present today who are still hostile to you, I ask that you would cause them to feel the weight of that. May they feel the fear that comes with that. But, oh Lord, please use that. Draw them to draw them to yourself. To give them eyes of faith, to, to see and to believe the glorious gospel that Jesus is a mighty Savior who saves sinners. And, Lord, as many of us anticipate the gifts of Christmas morning, would you... Would you make us satisfied in the only gift we really need, in the gift of faith in Jesus Christ? And Lord, may we who are your people proclaim with the angels in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Lord, thank you for the peace you give us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.